Coming to you from cities all over the world, produced in Aotearoa, New Zealand, this is the Places for Good podcast. We bring you the designers, planners, and placemakers who shape the shared spaces of tomorrow, from stories of the past to visions for the future. We talk pride of place wherever you are. I'm your host, Boopsy Moran. Our guest today is a first-generation Turkish-American cultural producer with a background in clean energy engineering. She currently is the manager and curator for the SF Urban Film Fest. This festival uses the power of storytelling to celebrate local culture while generating civic engagement to holistically explain and work through urban issues. She can be found in the Bay Area working on environmental justice issues, counseling tenants on their rights, or supporting volunteers in the Shanti Project. Joining us from Chochneo Olone territory, also known as Oakland, California, please welcome Kristal Chelik. Hi, hi, Boopsy. Thanks for having me. Well, this is so great to have San Francisco here with me in Auckland, New Zealand, Tamaki Makoto, New Zealand, because we are in a level 3.2 lockdown. So I'm mm. really enjoying these podcasts and chats. So let's just start with them. Um, some questions and co- to get our conversation going. And I thought we might start off with a story of a moment in your first years in Berkeley in the Bay Area where you knew your engineering degree might merge into urban issues. Sure. So so I started out doing engineering. I was just talking about this at a time in my life when I uh, was looking for it was shortly after the death of my mother and I was looking for things I was drawn towards things that had a correct answer things that weren't ambiguous and the math and engineering provided that kind of like safe space for me and I was good at it so I I'm studying mechanical engineering and then I'm also getting politicized while I'm at school in Berkeley and as as those two things are overlapping, I'm struggling to find where in engineering is the impact that I'm looking for. And I mean, then I entered this whole this whole thing of looking at engineers and engineering for this general sense in in my experience, this general sense. Um, in the sector, in the field of it being apolitical, specifically in this country, um, as if as if the people who are creating the built environment and designing the built environment can be removed from the politics of what ends up happening there. Mm. So, so it was this interesting. I was like trying to find meaning where I found meaning was connecting it with people and, and creating a better earth. So that, that leads me to sustainability, sustainability and energy engineering. And maybe because of engineer, your engineering background, I think everyday people often overlook infrastructure, right? They just forget that a house takes even Wi-Fi, I consider infrastructure, right? Like how are you going right. to access that Wi-Fi and people need that internet access for equity? Um, it's those things, right? So I'm sure- Right, and, as, a, and a human yeah. designs those things. Like it's not it's not always, it, it's an equity issue, but it's not always someone with an equity lens approaching the building of the platform, the infrastructure. Um, mm. So I was working in energy engineering for a little while outside of once I graduated from college. And what I was frustrated with was that in the School of Engineering, I wasn't getting much of that perspective at all. It was through my friends and people that I surrounded with myself outside of my classes that I had that kind of like, I'll call it a political awakening. Um, and so then the frustration is why why are these things not a part of my education as an engineer? And actually someone at Berkeley that's doing incredible work around this is Khalid Kadir. He's he's like merging this um, environmental justice with engineering and environmentalism. Wow, amazing. And, he, and I guess I guess that's where we can shift from the Berkeley experience to political awakening being a thing, right? And right. so 
Um, at what point, let's say if you're mayor of the city, mayor of a city, your hometown or Bay Area cities, um, the, the mayor doesn't need a political awakening because they're a pol- they are a policy person. How do they get the environmental human awakening? And if you merge those two, what would you do having both those lenses to a space or your city? Totally. So this kind of gets to the fact that, so I was in a technical field, working in a technical field, and it became, it started becoming very clear to me that it's not a technical problem that we're dealing with and that where actually my energy was more valuable would be in, in a way to communicate, to educate, to activate, to build a shared understanding you know, politics it, in its actual definition of politics. Um, my energy was more useful there. So, I mean, it's interesting that to me that I was in a technical field and I end up working for a small arts nonprofit because genuinely, it, you know, it's, it's things that are in me and passions that are in me that were touched and are touched by the arts, but it's also an analysis of where my time is best spent and right now this is this is where it is so pretend your time you're spending your time as mayor what what would what do you want to do pick some things that you you're mayor you've you've been elected crystal is mayor of the city (laughs) what are we changing first in in a term or some people have adjusted it to two terms but let's say in a term what could you do in one term um to create change sure i mean the in san francisco you can't to me, the number one thing is our unhoused neighbors. And this, you know, it's a city with over 75 billionaires in the city and one of the worst homeless problems in in the country. And to me, at the root of that, it's empathy. It's how how have we gotten to a place where I don't feel implicated in people needing to live outdoors, you know, not, not withstanding those that choose to live outdoors, but to those that are forced to live outdoors because of the economic opportunity and wealth gap in this city. And so, I mean, this is maybe out of the box, but to me, to me, reinforcing that connection, but of our interdependentness. Mm. Do you have any ideas? Do you have any out of the box, like Let's say you're running and I, I'm in the, my arms up and I say, Crystal, what does that look like? What does that look like when you bring together the 75 billion, 75 billionaires to empathetically look like they have a part to play in improving the houseless? What does that right. look like? Right. And I think that happens through storytelling. How do we make people care is through sharing of stories, because when you know someone, you can't when you get to really know someone you can't deny your shared humanity and so i i mean something just comes to mind with having having citizens maybe maybe it's through work or through some other system where we're spending actual time with with like say say someone that is unhoused or living outside uh, and building genuine connection it's like it's like peer support or mutual support or uh, building of genuine relationships. Hmm. Something, I mean, I guess as mayor, what does that look like? (laughs) Well, because it's funny because places, so places for good, one of our taglines is um, make me aware, make me care, give me a call to action. So Mm -hmm. SF Mm -hmm. Urban Film Fest is getting the aware and now now we have the care. So we've have the care. So what does the call to action? Is it like a big brother um, group where you have, you merge the two and people volunteer their time? Cause there is a balance of here, I'll just give you money and solve the problem. But I think we're past right. that because they have all the money. And so how right. does that money turn into action? It's a tricky one. We don't have to go too deep, but I was just curious. Um, right. I just have a couple things to say to what you just said. One, one, the money thing. It's like, yes, we have the money, but where is the money going? It's going to these, these uh, programs that have all these very specific rules where if you're an unhoused person on the street, there's like very specific things that you can get money for or use money for. And it, it's not, 
that that is a denial of our shared humanity. Why do you why one, why don't we just give these people seven thousand dollars cash or whatever it is we're we're spending each year for each person on the street through some kind of program? And yet we're still seeing street sweeps where where police are coming and telling people to move somewhere else, that it's criminal that you exist here. So one, maybe the policy is giving cash directly to those that we're trying to help. And I'm doing air quotations here. Yep. Um, I mean, it's like, why do we, why do we not trust that every person knows what's best for them? The other thing I wanted to say is you brought up maybe a, maybe a big brother program. And to me, it's like, that's even, even that concept of one party being above the other, older than the other, or big to the other. It's like, that is part of this problem where, where we assume superiority for economic status. It's like, we have as, we have as much to learn. We house people have as much to learn from people living on the streets as they may have to learn from us. The, the level of resourcefulness and community, genuine community building based on trust and and care for each other. So I guess when you have um, a person in your community that's able to reflect that story, do you have anyone that's really um, done well in sharing that layer of respect that the people who are unhoused deserve? And and do you have a story of someone that broke broke all those belief systems that some one's one's bigger than the other and kind of equalized it through their storytelling? Yeah, I mean, you just teed it right up. We last year at our film festival, we did a program with a guest curator. Her name is Jessica Prado. She's a photojournalist in the Bay Area. She lives in a vehicle and a vehicle community. And her her mode of storytelling is film and uh, articles supported by her photography. And she she in curating the program people led solutions for it and it was a platform where we showed films made by and about unhoused folks in the bay area locally and throughout the country and focused on what kind of solutions do the people already hold that if policymakers paid attention to them. And so we use this as a platform to invite policymakers to hear directly from these activists. Mm. Um, what solutions do we already hold? Do they already know would work for them? What are they trying, like what actually can we learn from systems of care and support networks that they've created in, in the cracks of what a city is trying to provide? in the cracks of, of care that mm -hmm. a city provides where actually unhoused folks are being criminalized for trying to live, mm -hmm. for trying to, you know, get basic, basic services that they need to live. Um, so Jessica is, I can't say enough good things about her. She, with well, so much humility, with so much humility exposes these issues and really acts as a liaison from her community to like networks of politicians, journalists, the, the public that may be out of touch with things that they're dealing with. And as her role as curator of your festival last year, mm -hmm. was she, is she now, and was she able to gain access to tables and rooms that aren't normally accessible to people from her background? And what has that brought about as a positive or a negative in her, mm -hmm. in her current position of where she might be today? Um, and if she did gain access to a room or a space or a table, was at the table, um, did anyone in particular really carry her through, follow through and really, or abandon her either or? Right. Uh, and actually I'd like to ask where she feels the impact has taken her right now. Uh, I spoke with her a few months ago. Uh, I think, I think the most powerful thing 
because she carried this program around people-led solutions and centered on this idea of generating care for your neighbors and interpersonal care actually was her solution to the housing crisis, that we need to care about each other and have a stake in it for any, any policy, you know, to get anywhere. And so part of, part of the film program and panel discussion was we partnered with the National Public Housing Museum in Chicago and Kresge Foundation supported this part where we assembled care packages for, for people in uh, unhoused encampments in mm -hmm. Chicago and the Bay Area. And so the, it was the virtual screening where we did a film screening and then panel discussion and then uh, had like a workshop section section where online people would assemble a care package and Jessica would talk about how this certain item could actually really make or break someone's experience if you're living outside and go through the items you get to choose which item you wanted to include and then would be will be distributed to people mm -hmm. in these camps um so even more than any politician i think having access to people's hearts in that way which is which is something that film does really well you know we have a especially in a film screening you have a a synchronized experience a very moving experience with with visuals and music to to get at the emotional to get an audience's emotional connection so after you have this after you have this film screening experience then you have a panel discussion where where your hearts and minds are more open to the complex issues that that the panelists want to talk about and then so I was, sorry as i was saying even more than a politician being in the room people living who are neighbors with folks that are living outside, having access to the empathy. But it was, a, for me, it was an exercise in building empathy. And that's like the ripple effect of that. I feel like is, then is when the you, most powerful. Yeah, and when you do that, I think politicians and maybe engineers don't realize how low cost it is to improve mental health and housing issues. Cause I think right. you really, by even just making a care package, it's, it's, there's, even if you look at a 20 year plan, maybe the first year of the 20 year plan is empathy building, trust building, and it's actually a lower cost right. than the concrete and the water, like start right. there first, invest in that first. Right. Right. And, and then that provides a platform for understanding what people actually want and what people actually need before you put the concrete in, mm. which lasts a long time. Do you know about any of those circumstances um, in the States where they have infill housing while they wait for the larger infrastructure and kind of build foundations of empathy, trust and design in that layout? Does that work? Is it, do you know about that? I don't know much about it. I was just interested. Yeah. I mean, we have we have a few different formats and a few different <laughs> few different problems with how we approach folks on the street. Like we, I don't know if you had this over there with during COVID, they're opening up hotel rooms for for unhoused people yes. in San Francisco, which which was great. Like people loved people loved uh, that opportunity, but then shortly soon after that, um, because because it's actually not as simple. Apparently you can't, you can't just walk up to a shelter and try and gain admittance. It's like you have to be met with a representative from the city who offers you the service. And, and when people were offered hotel rooms, the service was readily accepted. Some, you know, a great, uh, a decent percentage. And then once that program started scaling back, when people were offered services, what they're offered is a lot of the times group shelters, which is where people don't have protection from COVID. And so people were denying, denying services. There's only so much that any of us can say without talking to someone that's having the experience and the, the experience is not 
the community is not a monolith. There's not one singular experience. There's like asking someone what they need goes goes a long way. And and of course there's there's always better solutions. Like one thing in, in the Bayview community in San Francisco, there was a park that actually the Bayview community had turned into a tent camp for their unhoused neighbors. And the Bayview community is is largely people of color. And it was it was this fight where the community would keep entering the park, putting up the tents and parks and rec would kick them out and lock the park up. And it was like this cycle until until the community proved that they were running a really efficient and safe camp and giving people a place to quarantine. This was during COVID. And finally, finally, the the city actually came and recognized what they were doing. And we're like, okay, how can we get some, how can we provide resources after fighting it for a while? And then what what that turned into was, um, I think over 100, 100 plus trailers were given to the people that were living in that tent camp and they they set up a city run trailer park wow. that, that provided housing for like after a year after the the um the health crisis is over so so great people have their own trailer that's that's like exactly what you know that's that's the goal is to have to build Safe. more Right, right. But then, but then the downside of that is they put it, they put it in where (laughs) they could find space. The trailer park is now in this kind of like sandy wasteland in the industrial area that's next to a a fat processing plant and a some other industrial where like you go over there and it it smells like the air is polluted. And so then it's like, what is what's your value of human life right right and then and then it's an environmental justice issue but also that 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 liaises interestingly enough in i like i've noticed how an sf urban film fest interviews that you go between houseless unhoused homeless and houseless and Mm. i guess there are instances where someone might feel homeless but there's people that Mm. have been living that way for a long time and they consider their car, their home. So they're houseless Um, and how that trailer park doesn't smell like home. Mm. So Mm. if you're the parks and recs person or the policymaker saying, I'm going to house these people here and make this their home. So that is what home doesn't smell and taste like for Mm. you, Crystal. Mm. What does home, if you were to write a brief, and you are about to house a hundred people. <laughs> what, what, these are some tips of what it might be nice if it's close to in this proximity to what, what smells like home, what tastes like. Right. Home. Right. I mean, for me, having lived in the Bay area for a while, it's, it's fresh air, you know, like we get, we get the Bay breeze. We get, we get clean uh, air filtered by the ocean. That, that is huge to me. And then, and then having space to appreciate that clean air, which is which is green space, which is parks, which is access to nature, being able to witness things growing. Mm. I, I always think like that is such a moving experience, being able to see things grow and understand, like to me, a vegetable garden or or not, or you know, just trees and mm. any kind of plant being able to see that grow is there's no way you can deny mm. the abundance of our world that's a good the, way to put it yeah that's like the cure to my scarcity mindset is look how much the earth will grow and provide to us if we if we let it or if we look for it i love how sometimes you'll have a piece of a crack in cement and there'll be there'll be a little plant coming through. So it just proves yes. it's actually not that hard. Yes. Let, yes. let it thrive. If it can do there, right. imagine if you gave it soil. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes when I see those those kinds of plants, I say, look, it couldn't help but to grow. Yeah. And imagine if you gave it space 
and not a sandy pit with bad smelling air? Um, what are you providing? So are there working with policymakers and councils sometimes in your work? Are there any particular um, in community engagement group or um, policy and planning sectors of any of the councils, whether it be Oakland, San Jose, San Francisco mm -hmm. City, that are really mm -hmm. doing going beyond the brief and trying a little bit harder to improve their practice? Are there any groups that you notice or recognize? Um, so I'll, I'm going to plug the festival now because it's actually it's really a really uh, sometimes I don't like to say innovative. <laughs> it's really um, effective and creative system that our founder, Fedor Maui, set up is storytelling workshops uh, to serve the film festival's mission of creating more just and equitable cities and to uh, interrupt traditional planning processes with opportunity for the community to lead. Um, she started doing, at our founding over seven years ago, started doing storytelling workshops for urban planners. And she has a history in urban planning. And her, her belief was that the people making the plans, the urban planners had lost touch with the communities that are actually affected. And so she started storytelling workshops where she brought in professional storytellers and filmmakers to teach the basics of storytelling and then to apply apply what they've learned in some kind of campaign. Like a few years ago, we did uh, how to build community support for, for uh, congestion pricing. And that, and we had, we had, you know, real urban planners attend and we've worked with some city departments. That, that ability to not only the actual skills of storytelling, developing the actual skills of storytelling, but that framework that anything we do has a story attached to it. And the story is how we can connect with people to actually make something effective. Like one, it's to, to make sure a community's needs are represented, but it's also, if we have some plan or some document or some white paper, how, how do we make sure that doesn't just end up on some online archive? How does it, how you can implement a plan, but if you don't have community buy-in, if the community doesn't even know about it, how effective is that plan going to be? Yeah. And so if, if you get the planner and the effective community member telling the story, what planners, mm -hmm. do you have any planners that you know of in your time with SF Urban Film Fest that have taken that torch and carried it right the way through? Maybe I know the timeline of these projects. It could be in 10 years from now, but where you see the momentum right. and you see that the seed and the spark came from that being in that storytelling room. So do you know of any planners or city workers that have been in a space and they're like, yes, I'm going to change? Because I think slowly as I do this work more, I'm honestly going to say my my a fault of mine, but something that people need more of is when you make someone else's problem yours. And I don't know if that's the mm -hmm. definition of empathy, but I feel like mm. what you're trying to do in that storytelling space is they have a problem. You think it's a different problem. They're telling you this is the problem. Now make it yours. And so do you have a planner or ex-policy person or mayor that has taken a problem that they've learned about in your storytelling session, made it theirs, and actively sought out solutions? So this isn't, this isn't the best answer, but what we've actually struggled with is, you know, we'll even have these city agencies participate as hosts of the workshop and, and come away from the workshop with unique narrative storyboards to make into some kind of campaign and we've yet to see we've yet to see an agency actually use use these like resources yeah. that we've generated for them for free but the other thing that's been happening at the same time is we started out doing storytelling workshops for urban planners and for the role of for to serve the goal of uh interrupting this top-down planning system that we have now and what we've transitioned into is serving 
community groups doing storytelling works for the community groups to kind of take control of their narrative. And that really flips the planning process. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a good way. So you empower them. What I think is more interesting is doing these storytelling, facilitating these storytelling workshops for a community group for the goal of, of with a stated specific goal in mind. Like we did one with young community developers in the Bayview around the goal of building Black intergenerational wealth and galvanizing a coalition of Black property owners in San Francisco. And, and we've done it with Soma Filipinas to support their chess process. Their, Soma Filipinas is a cultural heritage district in the Soma neighborhood of San Francisco. Um, so to support their chess process, which is cultural heritage, housing, economic strategies. It's like a, mm -hmm. it's kind of like a, um, a plan that the city will adopt and ratify that Soma Filipinas develops. Yeah, it sounds like for, an amazing toolkit. Exactly. Or they've simplified it. So they've taken their desires and their needs and they've translated it in a way because planners love acronyms. So they can <laughs> throw that around in their meetings and hopefully eventually right. they'll know what they mean. Right. Right. And so, so this chess plan, we've done a storytelling workshop with community members of Soma Filipinas to talk about how we make this plan more than just a piece of paper. You know, a lot of, a lot of work and research and community organizing went into the creation of the plan, but then to implement it, how, how do we get community members behind that? And so that's, I mean, that's, out of these storytelling workshops, we're actually developing a documentary with Soma Filipinas where hmm. we're co-producing it with Soma Filipinas, talking, exploring the history of um, redevelopment in Soma in the Yerba Buena district, which displaced thousands of residents and hundreds of businesses, many of them Filipino. And more than just you know, combing through so, so much archival material, documents, maps, footage, beyond just like cataloging what happened in the past, the film crew is using, using the Philippinex legacy of resistance to connect to current pressures of displacement that are affecting the neighborhood. Like, well, that's an interesting like question I have. So I literally wrote down, through your story, just before you started the Filipina story, how, yeah. do we do, how do we do avoid gentrification without dis displacement? Like those are the two words that you ended with. And that was my next question was, <laughs> um, yeah, because there's going to be gentrification. It'll look like gentrification and it'll be hard to get rid of that word, but at the very least without displacement. So in mm. incorporating the existing fabric into it. So are there any tips that that particular group of people who you're working with in Yerba Buena mm -hmm. have in their toolkit for avoiding displacement or incorporating those people without removing them from the fabric of the existing place? Right. Well, a lot of, so a lot of Soma Filipinas' work is around uh, activism and advocacy in land use and, and being having a say, demanding space in decisions that are made around land use, you know, so that, so that developers and the city are beholden to the community that is already there. There's, and there, you know, there's examples of developers needing to, or community groups advocating for uh, community benefits. So with a development, they, they get a certain certain dollar amount or in, in kind uh, resources for a community space or community programs, et cetera. And, and what is to us kind of one one step beyond just getting getting, you know, some scraps at 
the expense of this new development coming in is like, how can we integrate into the process so that, so that the community is part of the development process? hundred percent. Like it's, it's fascinating because we have the same problem here with, let alone our indigenous populations. Let's add the Mm. migrants, the new migrants, the Pacifica communities. Um, how sure you can give them a one storefront when they had a hundred or, and, and it's so easy for developers to pay for planners to adapt land use policy to work for them. Um, how are we encouraging or I upskills the wrong word, but there's a better word I'm sure to empower the existing community to understand the shifting of land use policy that isn't in the hands of only a developer and the city. Um, so I wonder, so what do the people behind the Yerba Buena communities that were there first, um, what have they learned so far as far as policy and political infrastructures that can support them in this process, if any? Yeah, so um, something really interesting that I've been humbled by that I've heard about um, in in different communities that have experienced redevelopment or renewal is that when it's actually happening or when it has happened in the past, it's common for folks that are getting displaced or negatively affected by it to not understand the, the structural powers at play and dynamics at play and how certain neighborhoods were targeted for certain reasons and having and instead instead kind of taking on like a personal responsibility yeah it's hard because i guess to because we work with the storytellers it's hard and that's a lot of my work actually is i say as my american background my strength is bragging (laughs) and i'd like (laughs) to use that strength for those in government that are maybe overshadowed by someone who's really good at talking about their great work. And it's not even that great. You know, I have this quiet person here who's approving all these grants That's and really, right. really supporting and they don't toot, th- toot their own horn is maybe a British thing, but so I'm I'll come out and I'll pull them out in meetings and I'll go thank this person because they are doing this. They're reading documents that are hundred pages and saying yes, and they don't have to. So That's it's, right. It's hard to find That's them. Actually, though, right? I don't They're, think I don't think we do that enough to bring out bring out the people in the system that are listening. Yeah. Right. Right. And and an important part of that is like that are making mistakes that are being brave enough to make mistakes, especially in the public eye. Like like that's something I feel like I'm continually relearning. Like trying and trying and messing up and saying the wrong thing, but instead of, instead of subscribing to this call out culture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You want to get, you want to get the call in culture. Yeah. And you want those people inside to be celebrated in a way that they don't, it's a balance, right? Cause you don't want them to overshadow their superior where they're like, look, you're my boss, but I'm doing all the hard work, but you want to quietly in certain ways say, thank you so much. Like, because you sign this off, well, because you approve something that normally isn't approved, um, you've started this, you're, you, you are the catalyst. It could be someone. And yeah, I really, um, a lot of these interviews are with people that are the facilitators or the artist or the in-between, but it is hard because yeah, their, their jobs are on the line if they say the wrong thing in a podcast. And so I hope that through this process of sharing our challenges and solutions that somehow people that are inside these political systems are given permission to share their failures more and given right. permission to celebrate their wins in a level that I think the private sector does more and the public sector mm. doesn't do enough. Right, right. I mean, honestly, just talking now, you've inspired me to for for the festival and for our upcoming festival to like to seek out those champions. And it, you know, not even champion. As if, as if like you're. Yeah, they're like brave. I don't know. They're, they're unsung heroes. I think in the sense right. that using our platform of artists who work with um, gentrification and all these stories we've spoken about in the, in this last 20 minutes or half hour. Um, it's then that next layer of 
it's funny because tr- it's like being it's sa- your space is probably really safe for the community but where is the layer of a planner to be given permission to sh- be respected i feel like when they go into those spaces they're taking a risk because their job is at risk and they do a lot of important decisions so is there a way to celebrate them or have that on i don't know there's some that are if they're not the mayor they're not on a pedestal and they're there because they want to be and they want to hear the stories of the people that are unhoused mm-hmm. but at the same time mm-hmm. sometimes their either job is in line for being in that space or they've made some decisions that that they should be proud of, but they can't share. I don't know. It's, I definitely think mm. it's not always a level playing field for them. If you're a bureaucrat, because already people look at you, right. like they're the problem. Right. Right. It, it's totally an interesting, an interesting dynamic. Like a lot, a lot of our audience are urban planners and, mm. and that's kind of from the get go who are in the room and often serving on our panel discussions, which are necessarily multidisciplinary as kind of like our, our theory of change. Um, and, but what you bring up about, about folks, bureaucratic folks that are in bureaucratic systems being brave. It's also like the, being in these spaces sometimes can challenge ideas and concepts that their worldview or professional view is based off of and and kind of easing that is important if we're going to have any kind of change because i've had meetings where people come in and they're Mm. already defensive because they've had so many bad instances with people in those positions that yeah it's it's a tricky the trickiest thing is allowing space for even the community, once they are allowed to be in a room with those people or welcomed into these spaces, how do you initiate a conversation where both parties feel like one's not more important than the other? Right, right. While, while also being, being true to what, what a politician is, is to serve the needs of the people. You know, we're, we're both humans, we're on equal playing field, but if, if me as a planner, me working in public service my role is to serve the public and so (laughs) it even flips kind of like the what we would assume is the the balance of power um or yeah they're the boss actually right right and I think that's something that that just all like like in the past past four years something I've thought about a lot is like (laughs) politicians are supposed to work for the people how how I mean, I know the answer to this question, but how do we get to a place where politicians are working for developers? I guess not only if they're working for developers, but that I guess is more reason why I try to pull out the planners Mm -hmm. and the office people and all those people that are providing the facts and information to the politicians, right? Because that really is in essence where they're getting advice from. So most of their advice before they approve a land use or anyone in the planning that is approving land use or promoting a new use for a space that used to be public and exactly the park story here in Auckland is a public park turning into a private housing development. Um, How are we creating spaces where the advice the leaders are getting Mm -hmm. is fair? and unbiased and represents the people that have been there always are living there now and want to be there sustainably in the future right? who aren't being heard. There must be a large population of people that are advising our leaders that are yet to either be celebrated for when they are doing well or introduced to those community leaders. Right. Right. Which is, which is part of why at the film festival like this, give centering quote-unquote marginalized voices through different different formats you know like we started with film we all, we grew to storytelling workshops we've been we've been in the past year working with a local theater group we've been doing visual art touching people in as many ways as possible because people learn in different ways and feel in different ways to hear hear the story that's being told to them however they need to hear it 
I think is a really interesting. Well, I think it's also and how, and your your work, right? Because you do work with the Shanti project and you were so they support people in another project you were doing in which we moved the meeting was because you were helping with tenants' rights, correct? So, right, so right. there's tenants' rights and similarly there's like land use policy paperwork or how to throw a street party paperwork. And in a previous podcast, one of the local government officials sat with a community person and filled out the Mm. three hours of paperwork to get their street party. So maybe that's, you have a paperwork party and anyone that has a piece of paperwork that they don't understand is sitting next to the official that approves that paperwork. Mm, I love that. Where, (laughs) Where are these people from? Um, the Auckland, it was an Auckland office, but she's actually Canadian too, but that she got shouted out as being a champion within the government system that when face-to-face, she went to a community meeting and then the per- luckily the community person said, can you help me fill this out? And if they asked me or you, we're used to that. We help people <laughs> fill out paperwork all the time, but we're actually not the people approving it. So right. isn't it a beautiful thing that the person who approves it or also has the power to make it a simpler more simplified process, right? Gives the time, if just once, to see the language barrier. And even if it's not just in a foreign language, a big word that's scary. That's right. That's <laughs> Why, right. Who's it for? Is it for the people that you're serving or is it for you to make it more difficult for them to apply? Right. Right. But yeah, paper. And, and maybe, and maybe, maybe you're not making it hard to apply. It's like it's been in place. These systems have been in place. And we get to places where we don't question the systems that are already in place. Can't even imagine the tenancy, tenancy rights paperwork that you are helping as an engineer, <laughs> right? I'm sure you don't go to these meetings and you're like, hi, I'm an engineer. Can I help you with your tenancy rights? <laughs> They're just happy I mean, that someone's yeah. sitting with them, right? What's it like to help someone with that kind of paperwork? That would be my final um, question, actually. Walk me through supporting someone who's totally random saying, I need help with counseling with my tenancy rights. Sure. So, I mean, that it's a trip because there's no protections for tenants in San Francisco are actually pretty strong. And every case there's just, just think about your own living situation and how complicated it gets. Like the, the, the cases that come, (laughs) like people calling in have, they don't follow, they don't follow a book of law. Like there, you have, you have a, you have a, you have guidelines, you have what your rights are, but then it's kind of like how the advice or offering that you give to someone isn't based on, well, here's a law and here's what you get. It's like, well, here's the law, this is your right. But sometimes landlords don't respond to that well, or like, actually you probably won't get what you're wanting if you go about it this way. So <laughs> do you have any examples pretty, of like a real genuine problem? Like my friend had an outdoor shower and, and he wanted an indoor shower eventually. Like he rented <laughs> it with an outdoor shower, but and it was in a beautiful forest like you're in. But at a certain point, they just wanted at least the water to be warm. And that took forever. Sure. So is, do you have like sure. two or three where someone you'd think that was a human right that had dignity and they just it wasn't in the paperwork? Oh, my gosh. Too many. Too many. I mean, there's too many. Uh, so there's been moratorium on evictions in San Francisco. It's still in effect throughout the whole pandemic. And the amount of landlords, master tenants, mostly landlords and corporate landlords that have tried to evict people for, I mean, it's, a, it's an illegal eviction, that I've tried to evict people during the pandemic is un unbelievable. It's really, I think people will be surprised how little a thing another human would unhouse someone for. And mm. I think there'll be versions of that in your, in your life. And right. then it helps people understand why we have a housing crisis. Because I think if another human can kick out another human for something so small and, mm. and imagine landlords doing it all over the world, then ta-da, this is what we have as a crisis. So I think if you have time, right. I would love to add things that you know of 
um, there won't be any names, just reasons yeah, yeah. people reasons people put in a box that said, I am evicting you because of this. Right. Right. I feel like yeah, it'll I, come I will to you. follow up. And then it it explains, it gives you perspective on how homeless people are houses people and homeless people. And you could even say, like, I heard a story where this was a there's a teacher, a school teacher that's going to work as a school teacher and they're houseless. So you could say a teacher called once and this was why he was getting evicted. And it just shows right. that people are right. losing that empathy. They're losing that connection and that the money has gone over the humanity. In right. this, and that I think your role doing tenancy counseling for rights is a big indicator of our species. It must be. It's probably better for your health. It's not at the top of your brain after <laughs> after yesterday's. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, honestly, part of it is like when you because just quickly, like when you're on a hotline, you never know what you're going to get. You never know if someone's going to be in crisis or if it's like, I, my lines are broken. How do I get, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you never know what you're going to get. Mm. And part of it, like the, the way personally that I can be really present with a person and help them through while like help them navigate while being mindful of the headspace that they're in is mm. being able to turn it off afterwards yes you know it's a gift being yeah. able to step out of it yeah and so yeah so if you have time for homework that would be appreciated and I can add I will. notes in the future I'm just so curious I will I will so yeah so let that brings us to the end I think and so where can people learn about all this amazing work you're doing um, whether it be for SF Film Fest or any other projects you want to plug here yes I'm totally I encourage people to check out sfurbanfilmfest.com. We have a an upcoming festival in March 2022 that will be based in San Francisco, but we'll have some kind of virtual offering for folks no matter where you are. And and always reach out. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, SF Urban Film Fest. We'd love to talk to you. And thank you so much for having me on here. Oh yeah, having you here today has been really great and gracias and thank you for showing us a path towards more just and equitable cities. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend and let's continue to grow and see new ways of playing and connecting in our cities and across the world. Thank you for listening.